Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Joining us from the National Gallery of Victoria is the Curator of International Fashion and Textiles, the esteemed Roger Leong. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And joining Roger on stage is someone familiar to probably many of you. He is one of the legends of our film world and a man of many talents. Would you please welcome John Flaus? Thank you. We'll have a sort of a general discussion um, about Adrian and his, his wonderful work, and you're more than welcome to ask questions throughout uh, this afternoon. And if you just indicate to me or one of my colleagues, we'll get the mic mm. to you because we're quite a disparate crowd. Um, um, let's, let's start the show, shall we? Thank you. <laughs> um, well, hi, John. Now, apparently I have to talk, introduce Adrian a little bit. Um, Please, so, Roger. I'm, yes, I'm, because it's not Adrian's work is not one of my specialties. Okay. So, do you know much about Adrian? His life, or no, not anything? a great deal. No. Um, I don't know that much either. But uh, mm. he was born in Connecticut uh, to a fairly uh, well-off family. His father was actually a furrier, a very successful furrier. His mother was a fashion designer, and. Uh, the, his mother and father ended up taking over his mother's family business, which actually was a millinery shop or millinery business, and they actually made a small fortune making uh, hats for people who went motoring, <laughs> uh, which was a sort of new trend because Adrian was born in 1903, so this is the beginning of the Ford motor car, I guess. The age period. of the horseless carriage. Exactly, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So he came from a very well-off family and... Um, and one sort of well-schooled in the art of uh, dress and, uh, and fashion. And apparently from the age of three years uh, of age, he was a prolific drawer, had fantastic uh, draftsmanship skills. He loved especially to draw um, <clears throat> animals, loved going to the zoo. He was, he was obsessed with sort of leopard spots and things like that and um, loved drawing sort of action, uh, <clears throat> animals in motion. And, uh, and, of course, his parents wanted him to go to law school, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he uh, decided he wanted to study fine art. So he studied at, uh, in New York at Parsons. And uh, for some reason, he wasn't uh, that uh, enamoured with his classes in New York. And his parents sent him, sent him off to Paris. Uh, the Parsons, Parsons had a branch in Paris. Um, and uh, he, I think, lived there for about six months. And while he was there, he actually designed a costume for one of his schoolmates and uh, or college mates. And that costume was seen at um, a ball in Paris and was uh, seen by none other than Irving Berlin. Mm. Um, and I don't know much about Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin was a sort of theatric. He was a Composer, the theatrical entrepreneur? Is that uh, I don't want to make this claim if anyone seeks to contradict, but he's possibly the most widely performed of all the writers of popular song. Right. I think yeah. I could <clears throat> make that claim for Irving Berlin. 
the the number of songs that he wrote, popular songs, right. that reached a public instantly, an uncritical public, uh, but they were possessed of an internal grace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something we ask of artists in any of the popular arts. Yeah, mm. yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, Irving Berlin invited him to come back to New York and, and do the costumes for... Mm. I don't know what. I'm not quite sure of the story there. But he wasn't sort of long under the sort of... Uh, uh, umbrella of Irving, Irving Berlin's um, uh, world uh, and then he was uh, spotted by uh, a woman called Natasha Rambova and perhaps you can mm-hmm. tell us a bit about her. Uh, no I can't really accept that uh, her husband was possibly if not the best known best seen man in the world close to it Rudolf mm. Valentino mm. Uh-huh. Uh, and she was essentially producing the film for Valentino. And Mm. uh, not that all of the films of Rudolf Valentino's were set in exotic places, they were not. Some of them had um, quite realistic uh, settings, contemporary settings. But Rambofa must have seen something in Adrian's ability uh, to to create costume. Mm. It It is, after all, it is an art, it is a ballad art, uh, peculiar to itself, though it, it has some cousins in other fields, mm, doesn't it? Costume, absolutely, yeah. but this is your specialty, Roger. You know costume. Oh, yeah, up to a point. I'm, you know, I'm into fashion. I don't actually know that much about film design, but uh, anyway, uh, Natasha Rambova was, and Valentino took Adrian to Hollywood, and that's uh, I think he went to Hollywood in 1924. At it's the about age 24, of, yes. At mm-hmm. the age of what, uh, 21, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Within a couple of years, he was snapped up by Cecil B. DeMille, who was... Who was at MGM for a while. 20, 1924 is the year that MGM was formed as such, when uh, Louis B. Mayer had his own production company, went into partnership with a couple other people. That old maverick Sam Golden, for instance. You know, They didn't last long together as, as uh, partners, oh. but uh, Sam's name stayed... Uh, uh, you know, as the identity of the studio, oh, right. uh, and yet Sam wasn't uh, he wasn't at the studio much much longer because oh, right. when he and Louis, um, when it came to a test of strength, it was Sam who backed off and oh. Louis owned the lot. They were brothers. But that was, uh, no, no. They, were, they were simply businessmen. Business brothers. And they were. If you think about it, 1924 films don't become part uh, a widespread part of popular uh, culture until. World War One, really. I mean, mm-hmm. they were, to begin with, mm. almost like local backyard entertainments. Of course, they had to have theatres uh, constructed for them, but they, it, it was not a nationwide mm. and uh, mm. and deeply ingrained in the culture yeah. uh, until after World War One. Right. So by 1924, various production companies were all heading to that one place in uh, in California. We won't go into the reasons why it, it was closer to Los Angeles than it was to San Francisco, but that has to do with a, a law that had been passed some years earlier and was mm. subsequently repealed. Um, and uh, many production companies were formed. Studios, as we understand them, were emerging and they... How will I put this? Studios were not in the first instance planned. They were simply production areas, mm. units, uh, technical units of one kind or another, and for reasons that simply were about um, rationalising time and space and, and, and transport, they tended to pack a number of these production areas together in the one place. Ultimately, that became what were known as the studios. Mm. But there were many production companies who might have owned uh, a segment of uh, a workplace, but not the lot. 
uh, all that was going to change, of course, after 1929. But uh, 1924, MGM are getting started. Right. And so Adrian mm. is there pretty much from, from the start of that from studio. From the start, yeah. Yes. And, 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 in fact, he joined, he was hired, he was poached um, by Louis B. Mayer in 1928. Oh, so at that, that beginning of the golden ah, because era, Demille yes. worked for MGM for a little while and then crossed to Paramount. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And so in 1928, at what the age of 27, he becomes MGM's uh, chief designer for the entire studio, and he only had one sort of rule for Adrian, and that was to make his stars as beautiful as possible. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so, within a sh- few short years, by 1932, Adrian ha- had actually transformed the entire wardrobe department. I think it's probably fair to say he had actually kind of organised the wardrobe department in a way that perhaps hadn't been quite so organised before because in the few, a few years before that, wardrobe departments were a fairly haphazard kind of affair, I imagine. Look, they came and went with the individual production. Yes, yeah. It's only, with again, with that phenomenon of the studio becoming uh, a little community, not simply a... a uh, a roughly aggregated workplace, but a community. Only then did we find this this sort of thing happen. Yeah, yes. yeah, and and you know he turned it into the largest uh, wardrobe operation. And I suppose MGM was probably the largest studio by then, anyway. They were the big spenders, I think. Yeah. Though Paramount was they were spending a ton of money too. But I suppose MGM were the biggest. Again, I don't know this, but there may be someone out there who's done the research and does know. Yes. Who was the largest at the time? Well, yeah, they were certainly yeah. up there, I guess. Oh, they were up there, yes. Yeah, and, and, and then uh, Adrian stayed with uh, MGM right through to, I think, 1941, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm not wrong. And in, that, in his entire film career, he designed costumes for over 250 films. I think 210 of those were at MGM. Mm. And um, he was uh, so famous, you know, the credit on the film was usually just gowns by Adrian. And that, for many films, was one of the major selling points, marketing uh, angles of of the entire film. And he really uh, helped to cement, create, enhance the image of a number of of MGM's key female stars, uh, namely uh, Norma Shearer, for for whom he designed 18 films, costumes for 18 films. Uh, Greta Garbo, I'm not quite sure how many films he worked with her uh, at MGM, but he designed practically all the costumes that she wore in her career at MGM. Uh, and then Joan Crawford, he worked on her twenty on twenty eight films with Joan Crawford. Uh, and, um, and in fact, uh, when Irving Irving Thalberg, the sort of production guru of MGM, who many credit with being the uh, the genius behind the success of MGM in, in that day. When he was asked about what was the, the formula for MGM's success, he, he said to Fortune magazine, it was basically down to two people, production designer Cedric Gibbons and costume designer Adrian. So here was a, a costume designer who'd reached sort of uh, mythic, you know, sort of star status along with the very stars that he was dressing. Uh, having said that, he was actually considered uh, qu- apparently quite a quietly spoken man, of course someone who was very determined, very talented and someone who worked very efficiently. He apparently could produce up to 75 sketches in a a single day. Uh, His authority was such that once he produced a a sketch, no producer, not even Louis B. Mayer, would question the the credibility of that sketch for the character. 
And of course, he would. He was a very good listener. I think as probably the best costume designers are. He listened, of course, to <laughs> you know the director and the producer, and yeah. he and he listened to what the stars wanted, and, and then he sort of produced what he, obviously, what they thought that the, uh, maybe what they didn't realise that they needed, and um, he. I, I guess that wonderful tie-in, and I don't know anything about Cedric Gibbons, but he clearly was responsible for designing those very glamorous, very shiny sets, and MGM did produce the shiniest films, I believe. Oh, And, and, and Adrian yes. matched that with his costumes. He did. But then, uh, when we were talking a little earlier, Roger, before we ended this, uh, you raised the examples of two of the early Tarzan films, uh, Johnny Weissmuller and yes, uh, yeah. Mario Solomon. Now, Gibbons was the production designer on those. Oh, right. So he had to construct, since they weren't going to get it, go out on location, certainly not to Africa, uh, Gibbons had to design uh, jungles in in Culver City, in MGM Studio, which he did. So Cedric Gibbons' name is associated not only with the uh, magnificent, you know, large-scale productions, uh, but also with things such as that. Mm. Um, now... Perhaps we should sort of refer a bit to the films that are going to be part of the program oh, that James has oh, curated. Um, what a season. Oh, it's a fantastic season. Um, um, shall we talk a bit, a, a, bit of, a bit first about the Norma Shearer films? Uh, yes, so, so they came earlier. Yeah. Norma Shearer herself as a cultural phenomenon in America and then when America presented itself to the world... Uh, Norma Shearer was one of its most eminent persons in those in the silent days up into the transition into sound, and then her career went on for the first decade of sound. Uh, she married the boss. There is uh, somewhere in there we know in the biographies Joan Crawford also on contract to MGM, not at all happy when Norma Shearer uh, is no longer on contract to the studio because she married Irving Thalberg. Uh, and uh, Crawford's remark was, what chance have I got when you're sleeping with a boss? Uh, let's hope she was being humorous when she said it. But, uh, if Joan Crawford, the person, is anything like some of those characters she played in the movies, <laughs> that was poison. Uh, well, Shira uh, was, uh, was a Canadian who retained an accent that was commented upon by people in the early sound mm. films. But I, I'm not sure how many, at least a dozen feature films she had lead roles in, mm. in the silent era. Mm. Uh, mm. And since these were at, at MGM, Norma Shearer was, in that sense, the, the, uh, the poster girl for, for that studio. Yeah, and, and, and look, just reading a little bit about her sort of biography, uh, you realise, I mean, she generally played, from what I understand, these sort of... Um, very sort of patrician role. She very rarely played a sort of working-class girl, unlike Joan Crawford. And she tended to play the good girl, I guess, largely. She did, yes. In the silent films, that's so. And, and again, I've, I have only read about them. I haven't been able to research the silent films. In the talkies. Films. Generally, but I in think, the talkies, yeah, she, yeah. She's always sort of has a kind of regal tone, you know, to her... her her characters. The regal tone is interesting because the, in the late 30s, she's playing in those um, sort of uh, costumes. Marie Antoinette, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm just thinking back to some of those earlier films. Now, where uh, one of the films in the, in the series will be The Divorcee. Uh, the Divorcee. Yeah. Hey, look, that's pretty tough stuff, that picture. It's a great film. Uh, and uh, what worries me about it now, looking at it, you know, with the, with the hindsight of. Oh, blimey, when you think about it, what's that? That's uh, 80 years. Yeah. Is it more? 1930. 
yeah, yeah. more. Yeah. Um, but uh, it um, that storyline, the situations it presents, and the the way in which the characters and the, and the clash of their motives mm. leads to so many hurtful decisions. Mm. You know, that, that one problematic situation uh, is... An attempt is made to solve one. Mm. Uh, result, another. Mm. Uh, more tangled than the first. Yeah. Uh, now, there point. is... With that, there's a questioning of what were the underlying... The, uh, a questioning of the unquestioned morality of the times, mm. uh, of the mm. 20s, going into mm. the, great, uh, mm. the great crash uh, at the end of the 20s. Mm. Uh, society changes because suddenly you've got enormous uh, a collapse of many industries, enormous uh, number of people out of work and mm. n- relying upon welfare and pretty miserable stuff that mm. welfare was by comparison mm. with today's. Mm. Uh, and um, it was in that context that she would play this character of one of a number of people, herself, uh, the husband, mm. the whole question of divorce, mm. uh, his lover, her lover, yes. etc. Yeah. Uh, and the solution to that is it's pretty strong stuff. It is. It's, yeah. If we didn't like it today, and I'm don't, I don't want to talk anybody out of coming to see it, but if you didn't like it today, I'd suggest it's because there is a, uh, a slickness about the dialogue and the delivery. Uh, it's a problem I have with Norma Shearer as an actor, actually, as I find she's she's driving everything from the outside. She's an, an expressionist actor. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when I use these terms, expressionism and impressionism, I'm uh, acknowledging broadly this principle. The expressionist work of art, whether it be a performance or a painting or a costume mm-hmm. or a building, is one which uh, uh, extends... Uh, its properties, its aesthetic properties, in overload to the viewer or, Mm. in the case of music, to the listener. Whereas the impressionistic work leaves something out. That is, there's an artful gap created. And into that gap, the listener, the viewer, whatever form you take, Mm. you're you're actually drawn into the... uh, And in the case of drama, you're drawn into the illusion. Mm. Uh, In theatre, Anton Chekhov... Uh, brought a radical innovation to theatre when he wrote plays in which some of the emotional territory was not being generated by the actors and transmitted to the audience, but in fact they were creating these gaps and the audience lent their feelings to the characters. It hadn't been done before in the history of drama. Now, that's what I want to say about Shearer as an actor is that for me she was always an expressionist actor. It doesn't mean that she was big and over the top all the time. She was energetic all the time. But that's what worries me a little. I feel The Divorcee would have been a better movie if here and there the actors had played with more restraint. Yep. It's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit like a stage play, isn't it? Unfortunately, it was. Yeah. But, mm. again, if we make the historical allowance, mm. we can see why that should be. Mm. Because um, the movies had been in existence yeah. as a, a social phenomenon since mm. the end of the 90s. They'd become a, a, a significant part of the popular entertainment mm. from the end of the teens into the mm. 20s. Mm. But uh, with the coming of sound... Now there was a problem. The, the professionals, they'd had that 20 years uh-huh, in which to develop their understanding of the medium and to, uh, first of all, um, discover the skills that were needed and then, secondly, hone those skills. Um, 
And having done that, to their satisfaction, and of course there's always uh, ambitious new people arriving wanting to be part of it, mm. um, and then along comes the medium of sound. And here's a problem, because some of the actors in the silent era had learned how to play with the very thing that costume assists with, mm. and that is they were not being thoroughly realistic mm. point by point, but they were taking some of the aspects of, of the familiar true world mm. and building it up. Something I say to screenwriters uh, to, when we're discussing realism is to give two examples of realism in a pictorial form. One is, uh, let's say, someone would like um, uh, directions on how to get from this building here, say, um, to another part of the CBD. Now, one of the things I could do, if, if I had the technology, would be to supply them with a realistic photograph, an aerial photograph of the distance from here, say, um, up to Victoria Parade or, or whatever, and, and across to Spencer Street and Spring Street. And that would be quite realistic. But as a guide to where you wanted to go in the CBD, it wouldn't be a big help at all. Whereas a street directory, which has now stylized reality, it, hasn't, it has distorted reality in order to make it more accessible. So a street directory is, in that sense, a more useful representation of the true world, uh, of the world, than would be a photograph. Now, when it comes to the art of mime and the dressing for mime mm. and the uh, structuring of the designs, uh, the, the, that is the little designed area in which the mime is played out, um, that uh, part of what's happening there is that's like the street directory where mm. the, the performer is signalling. Along comes sound. Now the, an entirely new dimension is added and that's dialogue. Language. Mm. I mean, we always had subtitles in silent films, I know, but these were relatively few and you couldn't develop extended arguments uh, via subtitles. But now it was possible to do that. So the actors, where were they going to find this? Uh, the people who'd been working in silent film were being pushed a little too hard. Mm. So their reliance on the camera the work of the designer, the work of uh, the wardrobe, costumier, um, all of these assisted them. But sometimes they didn't, what they didn't practice was flexibility and or subtlety in the use of voice. Mm. And, it's, look, and it's very interesting that you make that distinction between an expressionist and an impressionist. And I was thinking as you were talking that uh, for me, I would, I would probably make, uh, judge... Well, consider Adrian to be an expressionist ah, I was going to ask in that, costume yes. design. That's yes. my that's my impression of uh, Adrian, yes. and, and that's not a. I'm not sort of judging him badly or, or well or either either way. No, but I think it was really interesting walking through that Hollywood costume exhibition and seeing. Well, the one particularly sort of standout Adrian costume was the one worn by Greta Garbo and Camille. Mm-hmm. No, no, Queen Christina. Sorry. Oh, fantastic! I, yes, I with this really yeah. heavy. Mm. beading and uh, uh, um, embroidery right across the collar and the sleeves, very, very heavy. And that was pure expressionism to me. And and it it really sort of um, laid it out. When you think about the sort of tricks that Adrian uses and you compare them to some of the costumes, say, by Travis Banton, Mm. Walter Plunkett, even Edith Head, um, the detailing is much, much stronger. The whole effect is much more graphic much more two-dimensional, I would say, for Adrian. 
costumes as compared with some other designers that we know. Yes. And even looking at Ori Kelly, that movie um, Lay Girls on the Weekend, it was a fantastic film. Ori Kelly's, I would describe him as painterly, whereas I would describe Adrian as architectural, draftsman-like, two-dimensional, still fantastic impact. And I yes. think that's one reason why Adrian's films, and particularly those MGM years, those sort of early 30s, or the, all of the 30s, stand out for me as such iconic and distinctive fashion moments because the costumes do actually stand out a lot. Yes. And even though Adrian himself, and he's quoted as saying, he recognised in 1930, he said, with the entrance of the human voice, characters suddenly became human beings, mm. everything had to be more real, the clothes took on a genuine character, and he said, what I'm trying to, to create for the screen are ultra-modern clothes, which will be adaptable for the street. But in fact... He really made quite distinctive, uh, strong statements. You know, when you think of um, um, those big white collars that Greta Garbo wore or those massive face-framing collars that Joan Crawford wore, um, they're, they're sort of almost... Well, they are overstatement, but what I think yes. is really interesting about Adrian as a designer was that with his incredible talent was that he was actually able to take not only the audience and make the audience convinced about those clothes, he actually in turn influenced fashion on the street. On the street. So he actually mm. brought that sense of overstatement and drama and graphic quality to the street. He influenced fashion, I think, in a very uh, significant way, and not just you know, in terms of broad shoulders and so forth. Though um, those broad shoulders of Joan Crawford's did become a... Absolutely, fashion. and look, he wasn't certainly yeah. the first designer uh, internationally to bring about those uh, uh, sort of clothes hanger, sort of uh, mm. what they call silhouette. But the way that he crafted the sleeve, the way that it, that sort of very dead straight sleeve, uh, that sort of very sort of military style yes. Uh, yes. Uh, sh- jacket and tailoring that he brought in into fashion, and which Joan Crawford epitomises that was very, very influential, particularly in America. And America was a very big, important market uh, at the time. Now, before I forget, I just wanted to say something about Shearer. And when you read about the sorts of things that um, Adrian did to sort of glamorise Norma Shearer, and it sounds... I'm going to sound very sexist when I say this, but, you know, all the commentary says that she had short, dumpy legs and a long waist... She also had. She also. She was also a, a petite woman uh, with um, very fine bone structure, but you know she was a little bit fleshy. Mm. Um, so Adrian's really uh, favour to, to Norma was to sort of elongate her, and one of, and when you look at the clothes that she wears, they almost always have a slightly raised waistline to give her a longer leg line. Mm. Um, uh, but. The other thing, uh, when you read about Norma Shearer, is that she actually helped herself incredibly. She apparently exercised relentlessly, dieted relentlessly to put herself into shape in order to stay in shape for the films. And I think it comes across beautifully. Uh, There's one scene in The Divorcee which you just have to see. Uh, It's Norma Shearer wearing this fantastic silk crepe de chine pyjama suit made by um, Adrian. And this is... uh, wonderful sort of geometric graphic quality to it where he's actually pieced together different colours of the pyjama suit 
I don't know if it's coming up on the screen or not, but uh, in this sort of very pure Art Deco mode, uh, but, the, but silk crate to sheen, and part of it is cut on the bias, and by bias cut I mean cut on the cross grain, and bias mm-hmm. cut silks just cling to every curve of the body, and she clearly doesn't look like she's wearing any underwear. Uh, and when you look at her from behind, you can see her the last cheek sort of flapping about just gently. And, and, and the great thing about Adrian's ability to use uh, uh, fabrics and cut... Uh, and, and do it with some of the most delicate fabrics was that the sort of the seams, those sort of seams cut on the bias, every time a woman moved in them, the, those curves would sort of, the silk would just sort of ripple along her body. And you see, you see those subtle effects in uh, his clothes for her in this particular film. And the other interesting thing about this film apparently was it was Norma's first successful attempt at being a bit naughty. You know, yes. a bit yeah. more vampish mm. yes. rather than the innocent, uh, prudish uh, sort of goody two shoes. And this is again an, an interesting reflection of uh, something that was going on in a change of the, the moral system uh, in mm. America, I, I think, was that because there's no suggestion that uh, she or her husband or any of the other, any of the other marriages, the pe- married people in that story, none of them have kids. In the story. They, yes, they no, don't have children. not in the divorcee, So no. the, the divorcees sort of looking at what are able-bodied adults probably in their 30s mm. and, the, and they have the time and the income mm. to be able to dress, mm. so, etc. Mm. Uh, who was your audience? Your audience were the battlers, most of whom were out of work. Yes. Now, the reason they could get to the pictures was because at the only time that the American government ever subsidised the American film industry was for some years during the Depression when um, uh, the, um, what do you call it, the box office. Uh, they subsidised at the box office so that people could go on to the pictures and they didn't have to pay relatively large sums of money to see the movies. Mm. So that, they were your major audience. Mm. But what were they paying to see? I'm paying to see uh, uh, members of an affluent society mm, mm. Uh, indulging themselves at pursuing uh, whatever their personal needs were. But that meant that they were all egotists. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. uh, and my worry about the film The Divorcee, so I've got to come and see it again. I haven't mm, seen it. Mm. Oh, jeez. I haven't seen it for over 50 years. But it, it left it left a memory. Yeah. Um, is that, um, that that ending is pretty much as nasty as anything else. It was as though the, the structure of this story mm. is a critical... It's critical of the values that are lived out by the characters in the story. Mm. Um, well, it's a tough film, I think, isn't in some it? Respect. So yeah. I, I really want to throw that back to people and say, look at the divorcee mm. and see where you stand about it, and, mm. uh, allowing that so, some of the, particularly the performances mm. by the present day, would be disappointing in this. They're, they're simplistic, some mm. of the acting. Mm. But that's, again, that's what was asked for by the yeah, actors. Yeah. George Kirkhall didn't direct that one, right. as he did some oh, of the others yeah. in this season. Did, and now, um, we might, shall we cut to the, more to the end of um, Norma Shearer's career? Oh, yes. To Marie Antoinette in 1938? Ah, well, by that time, the, the Norma Shearer image had changed and she was now playing um, uh, historical figures, or, or if they were not actually part of recorded history from historical periods. And there was a, a, how should we call it, there was a sort of a, a majesty to them. And I mean personal majesty, not, not legal majesty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Idiot's Delight, which happens in this time, 
It's an interesting one to check because uh, here she is playing an American woman pretending to be Russian. So her Russian accent's got to be a a clunky accent. Uh, The trouble is if you get a clunky actor to play a clunky accent, you're... (laughs) Now, I may be showing some bias that is not shared by others. I mean, my mum loved Norma Shearer. When I was a kid, Norma Shearer was what my mum talked about, not Joan Crawford, not Marlene Dietrich or Greta Garbo, but Norma Shearer. Um, Well, she wears some pretty um, exotic costumes in there. In fact, there's a fabulous um, beaded uh, black uh, dinner dress that she wears with massive collar and braces, a belt filled with diamantes, just in the same way that that Mm -hmm. Queen Christina Mm -hmm. costume worn by Garbo uh, is in the exhibition. Now, Roger, I'll put this to you. Since your concern is about all of that, the intricacy and the sophistication of the art of, yeah. of costume design, yeah. would you agree with me that there's a danger for the, for the overall effect of the drama, I'm thinking as an actor now, mm. that if the costume expresses so much of the character I'm required to play, mm. that I become like a subordinate to my costume? Uh, I... Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point, John, because I'm, I'm thinking now of The Women, which I re-watched just the mm-hmm. other day. Mm-hmm. And what I love about The Women, and we saw some of the snippets there, that yeah. each character has their own way of dressing, very distinctive. To Rosalind Russell, always has a stupid hat. Yeah. <laughs> and she always has some funny sort of accessory. Um, uh, and she, basically, she's a kind of like a... Uh, like a like a deranged chook, you know, <laughs> throughout the film. Edith, the sort of older matron who's got like six children, she's this kind of motherly, plumpish type. Yeah. But there's something, there's something not quite right, or not because she, she's not, she's no innocent. She's a, she's a, she's a nasty piece of work, really. At the, <laughs> at, the yeah. at the bottom of it all, yeah. and 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 I think that Adrian's kind of captured that character in there, and yeah. Norma is always noble. Nor, uh, who plays the sort of the the, the wounded uh, wife in in the women, always very elegant, always very understated, modest, but always very stylish. And then, of course, Joan is as brassy as can be, oh. but and steely and hard as nails. And all her everything she wears is sort of sharp or shiny, and looks like it would cut you with a knife, you yeah. know. So I I can't separate the characters and the acting. From, from their dress. Uh, to me, yeah. it's a tour de force for Adrian, that, that film. Yes. Um, yes, yes. In I, that, I, I, I can't that. separate mm-hmm. it because to me, the whole thing, the production values, I can't separate them. To me, it's just all wonderful. And the lines, the lines oh, which come well, from that play. Claire Booth, Booth yes, who wrote that. I mean, it was a stage play originally. Yeah. Yes. What about Virginia Weidler as the daughter? Now, the, 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 uh, you, she's it, perhaps the only... The, she's perhaps the only bit that's the least convincing, I guess. Oh, the really? least enjoyable, I guess. Ah, now maybe, <laughs> let me put this to you, maybe her, her lack of, of, of uh, decoration yeah. actually is more realistic. Is, is, then she's disappointing uh, because she dresses so, well, she is dressed to be so ordinary. Ordinary. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, but she's always got these funny little bows. Has she got funny little things? Yes, that's right, she has too. Yeah, which of course would have been legitimate legitimate when I was growing up. But isn't the bow, the the woman's bow, if if she wears it, is it not a sign that she is to some degree oppressed? Ah, yeah, good point. Uh, um, point. Is it almost like a a code, the, the, the buttons and bows thing? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, again, yeah. I've got to throw that back to people and see what they think because yeah. the, uh, the practice, uh, you know, as the, for the dressing of people's concern, yeah. let's say with, the, with the, 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 the battlers of American society, it was true from my memory of, of this country in Australia, that we, we still wanted even the, the, the families that were on low and, and uncertain incomes, we wanted our daughters to look nice. We gave them ribbons for their hair, yeah, and and a few other little things, perhaps. Package them up. Yes, and, and maybe a little, uh, some sort of buckle on their shoes, mm, perhaps, mm. Um, when they were wearing shoes. But of course, part of the time, the girls got around barefooted anyway. Mm. Um, that, uh, that that dress habilement. Oh, there we are. I meant to use that word before. Roger. <laughs> Isn't that a good word? Habilement. That's a great word. But it wasn't habilement itself a form of codification Absolutely. of of where the person, particularly if it was a woman, where the 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 place she had in the social hierarchy. Mm. It was the signal was sent out via the code of the clo- particularly the accessories to a clothing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But actually, John, sorry to divert. To, to, uh, diverge there, but you know that Technicolor scene in the women, the, yes, the fashion yeah. parade, which is mm. fantastic. Um, I've always wondered why didn't they make the whole film Technicolor? Was it about budget? Ah, uh, I doubt it. I mean, well, the way that that studio was spending money, I don't think they would have had to worry about that. Um, look, I don't know. Um, yeah. And see, some of those executive decisions are taken by people in the back room, mm. even even with Hollywood studios. You know, not all the decisions are up front. Yeah. It may have been an individual who said the, 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 that section with the costumes, mm. um, it's going to work better, it's going to impress people more if it's in colour, but the rest isn't. It I certainly mean, does. It's and, fantastic. And it does work that yeah, way, it doesn't it? Yeah, it takes you to another world. But yeah. I've never found anywhere in, in my reading over the years a, a, a justification for it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, apparently there were two other films, MGM films, that Adrian designed for that had that, inter- that, that little fashion yeah. parade segment. Perhaps it was Adrian himself. But yeah. what, what is known about Adrian would suggest that he was not in, in any sense overbearing or, or, no, or no, demanding. No, no. But uh, maybe he could, he could put his requests in simple yeah. terms. Perhaps. Well, from what I understand, MGM kind of were, can't, you know, they kind of used Adrian as a kind of a selling As a selling point for, point, the, for, yeah, the, yeah. for the films. And the, of the seven major studios, the MGM is the one that you sort of as as being the, the most glossy, the most glossy. sparkling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm thinking about something else too. That the MGM of the silent era had uh, uh, a very wide, in, in stylistic terms, a wide variety of films that it presented in the silent era. But with the coming of sound, and particularly mm. with Irving Thalberg being the, the, he was the dark genius behind most of them. Mm. Why do um, you say dark? Uh, I, oh, because I mean, he, he didn't want the light thrown on. Oh, I see. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, it in <laughs> thought that there sense. was some macabre. No, 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 nothing sinister. macabre at all. But but simply that that, uh, of course, he he, he was known, and and uh, once uh, the marriage with Sura happened, then he became more and more 
better known. Mm, mm. But look, really, that it's in Thalberg's time that MGM stops making pictures that have got, uh, how are we going to put it, they're stable because the major studios all contracted uh, stars into them for mm. given periods of time. Mm. It was only after World War II that that pattern was broken when uh, James Stewart returned from World War II and said he wasn't going to sign a, a um, contract with a studio again. Right. And then Cary Grant followed his uh, oh, example right. and then after the many did. Mm. But prior to that time, if mm. you were going to have lead roles, you signed up to a studio. Mm. Now, MGM didn't have big tough guys. I mean, interestingly, when... Clark Gable took his shirt off, and it happened one night. It was when he was lent to another studio. It wasn't an MGM oh, film. Uh, and that Clark Gable, you see, didn't, he didn't show us that, that rough and tough side of him. Well, it's because the studio didn't want us to see it yeah. until he had made dozens of films. Oh, interesting. Um, and so they didn't have tough guys. See, their lead players often, uh, male lead players, were people like Franchot Tone and Robert Montgomery, and you look at those blokes, and, and everyone in the studios had these leading men. Uh, Warner Brothers had people like George Brent. Now, you look at these blokes and say, they wouldn't know how to throw a punch. No, they wouldn't know how to no. draw a gun. They, uh, they may be able to ride a horse, but it was in a very genteel kind of way. Yeah. And they'd never jump from a speeding train, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they got the leads in these films, even though George Brent, as some of us may know, you know was, a, was a wanted man in Ireland. He'd, he'd been... Uh, uh, an IRA activist against the British, and they had a price on his head. He went to America, so he, and he, he drove Michael Collins. He knew how to do all those things. He knew how to drive fast cars and shoot guns and all the rest of it. But when he got onto the screen in Hollywood, what they wanted him for was a lounge lizard, you know. And <laughs> he, his little moustache, Errol Flynn copied his little moustache yeah. afterwards. Huh? Yeah. But so what I'm getting at there was that a number of the studios, MGM more than the others. It didn't have um, what we might think of as rowdies. Fear it was on. Warner Brothers and yeah. so forth that oh, had these blokes. Well, so, the women really dominated, and, the, didn't they? and they did. And so MGM was selling a product, a cultural product, in which women were um, almost always central to whatever was the was the, the story, the, what, whatever conflict of values, whatever moral dilemmas were going to be presented, women would be at the centre of it. Mm. and frequently were the instigators of it. Mm. So the men were their satellites. And some of those films we're going to look at in the season. Uh, <coughs> consider this. <coughs> the society being depicted uh, represents the men as having the power and the privilege. But in dramatic terms of where your interest is, you know, of when you start lending emotion to what you see, it's going to be towards the women, not the men. Mm. It's a bit like a Jane Austen novel, isn't it? Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, perhaps... We, oh, no, I just <coughs> wanted to uh, mention a few facts about Marie Antoinette that I oh, yes. pulled off the internet or wherever. Um, now, apparently it took something like five years' preparation. It was the most elaborate production at the time in Hollywood. Uh, Adrian actually travelled to France and Vienna not only to uh, do his research but also to bring back authentic uh, fabrics, laces, brocades and, and silks and so forth. He designed something like 4,000 costumes in all for the production, for 1,250 extras as well as the lead actors. <laughs> um, and um, Norma Shearer herself wore 34 costumes in the film with a combined weight of 1,800 pounds. <laughs> the heaviest was a wedding dress at 108 pounds, which included 500 yards of sheer white satin and every inch hand-embroidered. There's a lot of hand 
embroidery, but also a lot of hand painting on the costumes in these in these uh, in this particular film. Yeah. Uh, the one, and I haven't seen the film, and I'm dying to see Norma oh, Shearer. Yeah. I don't know how old she was then, but she must have been close to. Uh, let's see, um, late thirties. She'd have 30s? to be by, by the time Aunt Marie Antoinette's about nineteen thirty-six. Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's got to I'm be. I'm dying she's to see be, her play that 30s. teenage Marie Antoinette as she arrives from Vienna uh, <laughs> at Versailles um, <laughs> in the carriage. So um, I'm dying to see how they pulled that one off. Well, um, you see Marlene Dietrich playing a teenager in, a, uh, in Scarlet Empress. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> uh, for one scene only, of course. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Um, now, we probably should talk a bit about the other actresses, oh, Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo, yes. Yeah. I mean, Garbo has lived on in the, the memory, uh, not just in the memory, but in, 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 the, in the imaginative life and perhaps in the fantasy of many people who may not even have seen her in, in more than the odd film. Mm. See, Norma Shearer's, uh, whatever we're going to call it, and I know I'm going <laughs> to open up another debate if I use this term, but I will, Norma Shearer's mythological status... Mm. pretty well vanished as soon as she left the screen. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that's not at all the case. I mean, Garbo, and at Paramount they had Dietrich, uh, and in fact some of the films that Garbo made are comparable in their uh, subject matter and their presentation to the ones that Dietrich made at Paramount, uh, that the, their image lived on after their careers had ended. Mm. But with Norma Shearer, that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, but Garbo... Now, I, I have to ask something else here, Roger. This is, these are the things you know. One of the requirements of the 1930 uh, code uh, for the studios, mm. and, and this was later on, around about 1935, uh, Will Hayes mm. tightened this up. But that original one said that there were a whole range of things that you couldn't show on the screen for in costumes. Mm. And one of the things that this led to was the... Um, almost impossible for us, unless we're, how will I put it, we've, we've got to be highly motivated, and that's questionable, such motivation. We wouldn't know what the, the bodily shape of the figures of some of those women were, because the costumes, in fact, hid that. Mm. See, it was only during World War II and afterwards that the phenomenon of the sweater girl occurred in American society and, mm. and then passed into the movies as well. Well, uh, well it's interesting, yeah. the prevailing fashions in the late 20s and the yes. 1930s, uh, in the 20s, you know, you, it was basically that straight up and down shift, the garçon look, which didn't the garçon, which totally yes. hid the, the shape of the body. Yes. In the 30s, the shape of the body came out, but it was, wasn't tightly outlined. A lot, most of the dresses were cut on the bias in the 1930s, and that was the way you hinted at the shape of the body. So the body <coughs> would cling around the, the top of the torso, it would sort of skim lightly over the waist, and then it would sort of cling over the hips before it would sort of drape... Uh, uh, around the, the thighs and the knees. So it was actually in the movement that the body shape was revealed. In the movement, yes. Not in the outline, mm. necessarily. Uh, and and, and this is why the stills can be so disappointing. Yes, uh -huh. yeah. And that's why when you look at these films, they're, they're actually incredibly sexy because Adrian uses those bias cuts very, very seductively. Mm. And, of course, I don't understand the production code, but apparently it wasn't possible to have cleavage uh, on film. But, no, well, but Adrian exploited that yes. and had lots of, I don't know what the word is, he had lots of backage, he had lots of plunging yes. backs. Uh, and all his stars, especially Joan Crawford, apparently yes. Greta Garbo didn't like 
being uh, sort of revealed, having her body revealed no. in any way. And so she's always covered up, sort of neck. Well, but when you uh, look at Mata Hari, you'll too. see that there's some costumes there where the shape of her body is seen. That's uh, true. But the, the story requires her to be exotic, to have come from an exotic place, uh, and then also to be practising an exotic art upon... Uh, possible victims, you know, uh, men. Uh, and so uh, you do see there's one scene I'm remembering... Where she's where wearing this outfit here, that one This there. extraordinary outfit. Sort of Catwoman outfit. Oh, I'm, yes. No, I'm thinking of another where yeah. she has more headdress than that. Yeah. But she actually does an erotic dance with an idol. Oh, she goes into right. a sexual embrace virtually with the idol. Yeah. Now, in the process of doing that, we see bare arms... And and the the shape of, of 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 her breasts are seen clearly in that sequence. Oh, fantastic! Now they're not they're not uncovered, not by any means. Yeah. But, uh, and in, it, her the dress itself is uh, well, it's not metallic, but it seems to be metallic. So it has that degree of reflection to it. It's always shiny with that. Yeah, it's shiny. It? Yes. Yeah. But. It, uh, the shape of, of Gabo's body can be seen there. Oh, that's interesting. But there's another point also to, to costume, Roger, that I want to put with you, and that is they, uh, the, the woman's legs. What, what was it about Adrian? He, he really didn't want women to show their legs except now and then. I mean, you know, Joan Crawford does that spectacular uh, striptease at the start of No More Ladies, mm. uh, but she's in her own bedroom when she does it. Mm. But for the most part... We weren't going to get, listen to me, do I sound like some lustful old man saying this, but we weren't going to get a good look at those women's legs uh, well, in Adrian's costumes. Yeah, it's interesting. Apparently Norma Shearer had very thick legs mm. and so mm. she never never wanted them to be revealed <laughs> anyway. Um, and apparently Joan Crawford has slightly short legs, so she was always wanting to elongate them. Yeah, so but, but she danced in a few films, so we got to look at her legs mm. in, in the costume of the professional dancer. Yes, mm. that's yeah. true. Actually, one film which I don't think the film stock exists that is probably the most famous Adrian design, you know, uh, um, of all of Joan Crawford's films was Letty Linton from 1932. Oh, I've never seen that. No, well, apparently the, oh. it doesn't exist. It doesn't, oh, uh, right, right. But the, the, he designed this fabulous dress, I don't have a photo of it here, which is basically, uh, it's pink organdy. Organdy is a sort of stiff white cotton and it's got these frilled, accordion-pleated frills that sort of radiate out yeah. of her shoulders mm. up mm. up to her sort of halfway up her head. Then it's got the sort of belt, and then, it, then it's got more frills down here that sort of radiate all around the hem. And uh, apparently it was the most copied uh, Adrian design ever oh. in the history of Hollywood. Oh, uh, and yes. and there, there was actually this whole system, I can't remember the name of the company, but there was a company that was set up to actually reproduce Hollywood costumes, many of them Adrian's, that, uh, that the studios would get maybe a small percentage yes. of, the, of the sales. Mm. And these were sold in big department stores all over the States, and, in, in, and they often in what they call cinema shops. And Macy's alone in New York sold 15,000 copies of this pink or organdy Letty Linton dress oh. uh, alone. And oh. apparently nationwide... Uh, there were 500,000 copies of this dress alone. Oh and I can't find the quote, but um, Adrian sort of made some remark that, um, and it's pretty over the top, this dress, made some remark that the copies made the original look modest. <laughs> <laughs> 
But somewhere in there, if there are that many were made, a few must still have survived. I'd, yeah, I'd, oh, well, the dress, I'd I, love mean, to, I haven't seen one myself, but I'd love to see one. Is that, was that about, a silent or sound film, Letty Linton? It was a uh, sound film. A sound film. Oh, time's up. Yes, oh, we sorry, we've been questions, having a good time we? having a chat yeah. here. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> James. So sorry to interrupt this amazing <laughs> conversation between Roger and John. Would you please thank our guests? <laughs> yes, right. yes. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.